Well, this morning we are continuing on in our uh, sermon series through the New Testament book of Acts, and we are looking at Acts chapter 16. So if you have a Bible and would like to turn there, you can turn to the, toward the back of the Bible, Acts chapter 16, or the sermon passage is going to be available for you on the screen. And as we've been making our way through the book of Acts, what we have seen is that Jesus, King Jesus, who died, who rose, and who ascended into heaven, is actually still very active at work in this world by his Holy Spirit through his church. And what we've seen is that Jesus is extending his mission as churches are planted in new places to reach more people with the good news of the gospel. And what we've seen is that it's actually churches, existing churches, that plant or start new churches, send church planters to lots of different places to reach new people. And so this section of the book of Acts records part of what is known as Paul's second missionary journey. And what we see is that the gospel is going to go to Europe for the very first time. And we see that the Holy Spirit is actually directing very intentionally and particularly where the gospel goes and when. It goes to all kinds of people in all kinds of places, people like you, people like your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. And the exciting thing is that the work that we read about here in Acts, God is continuing to do right now, today, in our world, right in our midst. And so in this passage, God is going to show us, show you ways in which he is at work, both in you and ways in which he is at work and able to be at work through you. So let me draw your attention to Acts chapter 16. We're going to read the entire passage. Um, It's a little bit long, but it's exciting. So here we go. Beginning in verse one, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. God, you have said, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would cause your word to go out and that you would make it succeed in accomplishing your specific purposes in each of our hearts this morning. 
We ask that you would help us to see Jesus clearly, that you would help us to trust in him, to delight in him, and to follow him, and to tell others about him. We ask this in his name. Amen. So how is it that anyone becomes a Christian? How does somebody start believing in Jesus and become a follower of him? Well, there's always a story. There's always a story of God's rescue and grace in someone's life. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you are presently believing in Jesus, then you have just such a story. And let me encourage you to tell that story wherever and with whoever you might have opportunity. Here's why. We all need to be encouraged by those stories. We all need to be encouraged with the reality that God is still at work in this world rescuing people. Jesus is still at work in this world and that is good news because there are all kinds of people in all kinds of places who need to be rescued by God's grace. And because God cares about rescuing people, we can be confident in his plan for how he does it. And so this morning, as we look at Acts 16, we're going to see first that it's God who plans the stories of rescue and grace. And it's God who directs the path of the gospel. And then it's God who opens the hearts of people to believe the gospel and God who saves by faith alone. So first, God is the one who plans the stories of rescue and grace. And everybody's story is unique. We're not the same. Maybe you know your own story of rescue and grace. Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't really even know what we're talking about. And that's okay. We want to help you come to understand. But maybe you're here this morning and maybe you sense that, that God is in some way at work in your life. And let me encourage you that he clearly is simply by the fact that you are sitting here hearing God's word. Why else would you be here except that God is at work in your life? It may just be that God is presently right now writing your story of rescue. In fact, even lifelong followers of Jesus, uh, for us, God is continuing to write his story of rescue and grace throughout the whole of our lives. And so in Acts chapter 16, we get to see how God plans the particular stories of rescue and grace in the lives of at least four different people. And so we've said this is part of what's known as Paul's second missionary journey. So what are Paul and his companions doing? And we see in verse 4, Luke tells us, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And so this is referring back to something that happened in Acts chapter 15 that we looked at last week. And I think it is helpful, important for us to briefly look back and get a little bit of the context so that as we look at this passage, we can observe an important principle for communicating the gospel, for reaching people with the gospel. So back in Acts chapter 15, Paul and his companion Barnabas had returned from what's known as 
Paul's first missionary journey, and they were back in a place called Antioch, which served as kind of their home base. And in Acts 15, 1 and 2, we read last week, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so there is this argument that's taking place about whether you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so in Acts chapter 15, we see that there was a gathering of apostles and elders in Jerusalem from the region, and it's known as the Jerusalem Council. And this is one of the passages from which we derive our Presbyterian form of government, where we have representative leaders from a region coming together and we see that the church is connected and it's connectional, that there is regional authority and oversight. I mentioned earlier that our particular presbytery called the Rocky Mountain Presbytery, which is made up of of pastors and representative elders from churches in Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana, met together on Thursday of this week. And some of the things that we do when we gather are we theologically examine pastors and we pray for and care for churches, and we work together to plant new churches, and we oversee campus ministries, and there's a lot of other things that take place collectively together as the churches gather within a region. And here in Acts 15, one of the things that this gathering, this council was doing, is they were deliberating about this question of circumcision, and they determined that the Gentiles who are becoming Christians do not need to be circumcised to be Christians. They don't need to become Jewish first before they can become Christians. You don't need to be circumcised to be saved. So we heard that a lot last week. Peter says in Acts 15, 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And so this council determines to write a letter to be delivered to the churches and to Gentiles, telling them that they don't need to be circumcised, only that they should do four things, that they should abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So they send this letter. And in Acts chapter 16, what Paul and Silas are doing is they are delivering this letter and the decisions of this council to the various churches. They're going through various cities. And this creates the context in which we find various people's stories of rescue and grace that God is writing. And in verse one of chapter 16, we meet a new traveling companion who's going to join Paul and Silas. And his name is Timothy. In verse 3, we read, Luke tells us, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And here's why we took a little time to go back to chapter 15 and get the context, because some of you, if you were here and heard that and heard over and over and over and over again how you don't need to be circumcised, may be wondering why in the world Would Paul circumcise Timothy after he's been having all of these arguments about circumcision and he gathered all of these, all these leaders gathered together to make the decision that's now being delivered that that you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You don't even have to be circumcised to please God. Why circumcise Timothy? 
And the answer, the reason is because Timothy was Jewish because he had a Jewish mother, but he also had a Greek father, which meant that he had not yet been circumcised. And Paul did not want this to create a barrier for the Jews that they would be going to hearing the gospel. Justin Holcomb notes that context and motivation are critical to Paul. He argues strongly against being circumcised if those arguing for circumcision believe that it is necessary in order to please God. Yet if the motivation is to remove barriers to people hearing about the grace of God, Paul will gladly give up any number of cultural practices or preferences. So Paul himself will write in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. I'm just going to read a few highlights. Paul says, To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And so we see a very clear principle here that we should never compromise the truth of the gospel. We should never compromise the truth of the gospel, but we should be willing to be flexible with cultural practices and preferences so that we don't create unnecessary barriers to people hearing and believing the gospel. So being all things to all people is going to mean that our churches are going to look and feel different in different contexts in order to best reach the people there. And we heard a little bit about that as Reed was explaining and then giving the pastoral prayer from our church plants. The reality that while, while many of the churches that we start and many of the churches we're connected to look similar in lots of different ways in our practices, there are also, also differences. Things look and feel different because of the particular context and the particular people that those churches are seeking to reach. And so there's a need to be flexible while holding on to the truth of the gospel. So people hearing and believing the gospel is a necessary part of God's writing their story of rescue and grace. And one of those stories we get to see is the story of Timothy himself. So who is Timothy? If you're familiar with the Bible, you may know that there are two books of the Bible in the New Testament that carry his name, two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. So what is his story? Well, Jerem Bars in his book, The Heart of Evangelism, gives a, a helpful summary of the, the timeline of the salvation of Timothy. And, and he notes that Timothy was from the pagan city of Lystra. And back in Acts 14, Paul was in Lystra and he was almost stoned to death in Lystra. See, the pagan people in Lystra had wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because a lame man had been healed, which led them to believe that Paul and Barnabas were the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. But then Jews came from other cities and they stirred up the crowd so that they stoned Paul, drug him out of the city and left him for dead. That wouldn't seem like a very successful missionary journey. We don't hear about anybody coming to faith in Christ at that point in time. Paul's laying there looking almost dead. But God was at work. God is always at work, even when we can't see it. 
And God is at work right now in your life, in your particular circumstances, even when you don't see it, even when you don't believe it. It's likely that Timothy and many others believed in Jesus at this very point when Paul's stoned and laying on the ground. See, in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra and strengthened, we're told in verses 21 and 22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So there were some people in that city who had come to faith. A year or two later, when Paul returned to Lystra, uh, Timothy was a mature believer here in Acts 16 who was spoken well of by the other believers. And so Paul took Timothy with him on his missionary journey to train him as an evangelist, as a church planter, as a teacher. But there's more to Timothy's story. If we're to dig a little deeper and look back, Acts 16.1 tells us that Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother which means he had a a mixed religious upbringing, much like many of you. His mother was Jewish, so legally he was considered Jewish, but his father was Greek, and so he had never been circumcised, which means that he was in violation of the Abrahamic covenant, which required all Jewish males to be circumcised. Kind of a sticky situation. And yet God was at work through Timothy's particular family situation. In Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. In that same letter in chapter 3, starting in verse 14, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so even though Timothy grew up in a pagan city, with a mixed religious family background, God was at work. Timothy was exposed to God's word at a very young age. He had a grandmother and a mother who read the Bible to him. And in time, God caused Timothy to hear the gospel preached and enabled him to believe it. God enabled Timothy to hear God's word and believe in Jesus, and he was saved. That was Timothy's story of rescue and grace. And that should encourage many of us whose family situations and religious backgrounds are a little bit confusing and maybe a little bit chaotic. Maybe you have very challenging family dynamics and maybe it seems like it's not the greatest context for faith to develop or grow. Let me encourage you that God is at work in the midst of that. And if you are a believer in Jesus right now, let me encourage you to think back to the people that God used in your own life as he was writing your own story of rescue and grace. Are there Loises, Eunices in your own story? People who read the Bible to you, mothers, grandmothers, 
Were there friends or neighbors, people at school who invited you to church, who invited you to a youth group or a Bible study? Do you see how God was at work carrying out your own story of rescue and grace, maybe over years, maybe over decades? And then think about this. Think about how God might be using you or desiring to use you in the lives of someone else. Maybe, maybe you are now the mother or the grandmother who has the opportunity to read the Bible to children. Or maybe you're serving in the children's ministry and you have the opportunity, you're getting to tell little ones about Jesus and encouraging them to trust in him. Or maybe you have friends or family members or neighbors who are in challenging spiritual situations, who have difficult family dynamics. And yet God has put you in a place where you are able to communicate the hope of the gospel. Never underestimate the ways in which God is able to use you and work through you as he's at work writing someone else's story of rescue and grace. God is the one who rescues. And we see next that God directs the path of the gospel. So in verses 6 through 10, we see very clearly how God is sovereignly, providentially directing exactly where the gospel goes and when just as he desires. Starting in verse six, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they, came, when, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Somebody after the first service said, I wish that I had a map so that I could kind of trace all of this geography. And maybe some of you have a Bible that has the map of Paul's second missionary journey in it that you could look at. But let me just say that it is a very circuitous path. That where they were coming from and where they thought they were going would have been a pretty straight path, and they ended up going all over the place. Uh, but they were convinced that God was leading them there in a very specific direction, uh, according to a path that had they not taken that, had they had gone where they were intending to go, they wouldn't have connected with Luke, who wrote this book. How did the Holy Spirit forbid them to speak the word in Asia? How did the Spirit of Jesus not allow them to go into Bithynia? We don't know for sure. Timothy Keller notes that uh, it could have been an outward circumstance, like an illness or a legal ban that, that Luke attributes to God's providential plan. It could have been their inward thinking, analysis, and prayer. It could have been something miraculous that God did. Luke doesn't say, but what he does tell us is that Paul did see a vision of a man begging him to come to Macedonia, which led them to conclude that God had called them to preach the gospel to them. And what this shows us is that God uses means to make sure that people get to the exact places at the exact time in order to proclaim the gospel to all kinds of specific people in particular places. So look at your own situation. 
Think about where it is that you presently live, where you work right now, where you're going to school right now. For some of you, I know that's exactly what you've been mapping out, but for others, it's not exactly according to your plan. But let me encourage you that where you are right now, the place you find yourself is not by any accident. That God has you exactly where he wants you at this time and place. So who are the people that providentially God has put around you who need to hear the good news of the gospel? Who are the people that God might use you in their lives as he writes their story of rescue and grace? You're not there by accident. And the encouraging thing is that it's not ultimately up to you. It's not ultimately up to me to make anybody believe, to get anybody to believe in Jesus. The next thing we see is that it's God who opens hearts to believe the gospel. Verses 11 through 15, they make their way to Philippi, which is a leading city in Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony. And apparently there were not the requisite 10 Jewish males in order to form a synagogue, kind of like our church. Uh, But they went to where they supposed there would be a prayer gathering. And so they went down by the riverside and they found a group of women who had gathered there and they spoke to them. And Luke tells us in verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And he says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So here is another person whose story we get to see as it's written. Lydia is a foreigner. She's from a place called Thyatira. She's not local. She's a businesswoman, though. She's probably very wealthy and influential. Thyatira was a place that was known for its really expensive dyes. And we're told that she was a dealer in purple dyes. So probably clothes that were dyed purple. And she's got a home that's large enough um, for her whole household and also can accommodate this group of traveling missionaries. And later we find out that her home is the place where the Philippian church meets. And she's the worshiper of God, which means that she has embraced Judaism and the Old Testament and the one true God that's part of her background. And now in verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart she was enabled to believe in Jesus. So God is the one who prepared her path, who brought her there, who gave her her background and awareness and understanding of the God of Israel and the Old Testament. And now he enables her to believe in Jesus because God's the one who brings people to faith. And that should be an encouragement and a motivation to us to pray for the people in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, who right now aren't yet trusting in Jesus and may seem to us a million miles away from trusting in Jesus, but God is the one who's able to open hearts. Then Luke tells us about another encounter with a very different person. In verse 16, Luke says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination And brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And so this girl's life is very different from Lydia's. She may have been a local girl. We don't know. Slaves were brought in from all kinds of places. But we know that she was not wealthy. She wasn't an influential businesswoman. She was a slave. She didn't even own herself. 
And we're told that she was possessed by a spirit. She was controlled. So her situation was very similar to this, the, the experience of addicts, people who are addicted to various things. She lived in a state of psychological trauma. And her owners used her and used her gifts in order to make money. She was just an economic tool to them, a non-person, a nobody, and she was enslaved. But Jesus set her free. See, this girl's story of rescue and grace came about because God sent Paul and Barnabas to her particular city to tell people about Jesus. And one day Paul is troubled, annoyed by this spirit that's in her. And he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it did. And she was set free. And her life and her future were changed in an instant because God was at work rescuing people. And her owners realized that they could not make money with her anymore. And so they got upset and they dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrates who were the rulers of this Roman colony. And they brought charges that they were disturbing the city. And so the magistrates had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. And they told the jailer to keep them there safely and securely. And so the jailer put them in the inner prison and he fastens their feet in stocks so they can't get away. But he didn't realize that he was locking up the very people whom God had sent to set him free. Who was this guy, this jailer? He was probably retired military, much of Philippi was, retired Roman soldiers. He was a Gentile, not a Jew. He was middle class. He's probably just doing his job, just like many of you, just like many of your coworkers and your neighbors. When God broke in, God caused an earthquake that opened the doors and caused all of the prisoners' bonds to be unfastened. And the jailer assumed that all the prisoners had escaped. And because it was his duty to keep them there, he knew that he was responsible and that if they had escaped, that he would be brought out and humiliated and executed in public. And so to avoid that, he was about to take his own life. This guy's about to take his own life. He is at the end, at the bottom and that is when God broke in with his story of rescue and grace. Paul told him not to harm himself. All the prisoners are here. Nobody's left. And the jailer fell down at their feet trembling. And we see that God saves by faith alone. Verse 30, the jailer says to them, what must I do to be saved? And they respond, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And notice what Paul and Silas don't do. They don't give him a list of things to do. They don't tell him to go clean up his life. They don't focus on any particular sin or vice or lifestyle. They tell him the one thing that you need to do to become a Christian, believe in the Lord Jesus that's a simple summary, but they explained it more. Verse 32, Luke tells us, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So people do need to understand who this Jesus is that we're called to believe. They need to understand that Jesus is God, that Jesus came and lived a perfect life that we could never live. And he came and died to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He died as a substitute 
But this man heard about Jesus and he believed. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus. And we're told in verse 34 that he and his family rejoiced that he had believed in God. He believed in Jesus who is God. And so the jailer and his, all his family were baptized. And verse 34 tells us, the jailer and his entire household rejoiced that he had believed in God. So the jailer believes, verse 34, and all his family were baptized, verse 33. And so we see there a clear principle about who is supposed to receive baptism when somebody believes. And we see that God rescues four different people from very different backgrounds, and none of them were religious insiders. None of them were. None of them were the inner circle, the people that, would be, that you would expect. In fact, a Jewish head of household would pray a very specific prayer every morning. This was a common prayer, thanking God that he had not been born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And yet we see here that God used some Jewish males to bring a Gentile, a woman, and a slave into the family of God. And they were now united together in Jesus. They were all brothers and sisters together in one family. And God delights to welcome all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds into his one family. And that, that welcome into the family comes not because of your pedigree, not because of your background, but only through the grace of Jesus, only through faith, through believing in him. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what kind of sin or darkness you presently find yourself in. God's grace can set you free. So don't ever think that you or anyone else in your life is outside of the purview or the reach of God's grace. God can rescue anyone. God alone is able to open up people's hearts so that they believe the gospel. And because he's powerful enough to do that, and because he desires and is at work doing just that, we're encouraged to pray for the people in our lives, in our school, in our neighborhoods, at work, who don't yet know Jesus. And we're also encouraged to go, to go into places where we can tell people about Jesus. All kinds of people in all kinds of different places, places where you are, places where God might call you to go. There are people there who need to hear the good news of the gospel, who need to be rescued. And by his Holy Spirit, Jesus leads the church to communicate that good news in all kinds of places. And the way he does it is he uses churches to plant new churches in order to reach all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And it might be that he is calling you to be a part of a new church somewhere else. We've got four that we as a body are involved in starting. Maybe he's calling you to go be a part of one of those churches to help reach new people in a new place with the gospel. And he uses Christians who read the Bible to other people, mothers and grandmothers, who read the Bible to children and grandchildren. He uses the conversations that Christians have, like you, with other people, wherever people 
gather to share the gospel. And he's at work writing stories of rescue and grace right here in our midst. And maybe your story is being written right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, even as you're listening to God's word. Maybe the Holy Spirit is actually encouraging you to trust in Jesus, to believe in him. And you can be assured that when you do, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Will you put your trust in him? If you have questions, we would love to talk with you about that. God is a God of rescue and grace. So let's rejoice and celebrate that together. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the deep and particular love with which you have loved us. A love that's unconditional, a love that goes before us and behind us, a love that surrounds us, a love that will never let us go. We ask that you would convince us of your love for us and that you would allow us to rest in it in such a way that it would shape the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we speak toward one another. Would you cause our awareness of your love to make us want to follow Jesus more and tell other people about him as well, that they too might find life in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.